Okay. Thanks everyone for coming. So over the last few weeks, we've been uh, looking at the things we do as a church, things like meeting together, eating together, singing together, uh, celebrating communion together. And today we are both exploring and practicing baptism. When we started this series, we didn't expect to, to have such a, an impact, but praise God, that's what baptism is like. So um, after the sermon, we'll sing a song and then we'll be heading outside to the pool that you might have seen and we'll be doing the baptisms out there. So what is baptism? Baptism is many things, but it's primarily an induction ritual and a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Induction rituals are not terribly common in Australian culture. We, we don't much like ceremony in Australia, but they do still exist. Getting engaged and all, all the celebrations that follow that, right up to and including the wedding, are all examples of induction rituals. In fact, getting married is such a serious thing most Australians still view marriage as a commitment for life, that the induction rituals are quite elaborate, not to mention expensive. What sort of ceremonies did you have on or before your wedding? Now, in Renew, we yell things out, so feel free to, to share what sort of exotic ceremonies you had on or before your wedding. Congratulations. Gradu what? Congratulations. Graduation. Graduation. Oh, that's another induction ceremony, yes. Sorry? Uh, pastoral meetings. Pastoral meetings before the wedding. Yep. So like marriage counselling, sort of pre-marriage counselling. Yep. Well, I got married in America and I discovered something new. They had what's called the rehearsal dinner. So you have the rehearsal dinner. And the night before, you go off with all these people. But then I discovered it's the groom who pays for the <laughs> So that's the way to get the groom to pay for something. <laughs> the rehearsal dinner. Bucks Day. We went uh, uh, paintballing and they all lined me up and shot me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sam's remembering that. <laughs> kitchen tea. Kitchen tea. Yep. Is that tea in a kitchen? No, it's bringing stuff to the kitchen. Oh, oh, so you get to kit out your kitchen. Cool. That's a good idea. We were married in an Orthodox church, so we had candles and crowns and whole lots of dots. Wow, yep. <laughs> you don't have kitchen teas in America, they have showers, wedding showers. Wedding showers. Yeah. So uh, there's wedding showers and baby showers. Are there any other showers? Normal. Yeah, just, just getting clean showers. <laughs> Baptisms. Any other exciting wedding ceremonies that, that you had? Sorry. We, Mabel and I, didn't do the full Chinese thing, but one of the, one of the um, things that we did after the wedding, we had a, a small reception because it was in a small Sydney sort of restaurant, Sydney restaurants, you know. But um, we had a big party out the back of Mabel's parents' house and because it was 
sort of they were Chinese, we did these Chinese things which seemed to mostly involve mocking the groom. So, <laughs> so that's what we did. <laughs> I think it's to show that you're worthy. So hopefully I'm worthy. So another example of an induction ceremony, well known to us on the Gold Coast and, and actually coming up very soon, is Schoolies Week. That's a celebration of the move from school student to, well, whatever comes after that. <laughs> the exuberance of Schoolies Week reveals the joy of this transition. Reveals some other things, but... Now, you won't find our baptism candidates partying wildly at surfers, apart from Luke, maybe. But, <laughs> but baptism, like weddings and schoolies, is a joyous occasion. It, too, is all about the transition from one sort of life to a new sort of life. A life before Christ to a life with Christ. One of the wonderful things about Christian faith is that we have the source of all wisdom to help us find answers. So while our schoolies may be wondering what the point of these last 13 years was and what comes next, we can discover what baptism means by looking at the Bible. So let's do that now. We're going to look at a section of a letter written to the church in Rome by the Apostle Paul way back in the first century, almost 2,000 years ago. Rather than reading the thousands of words of the letter, we're just going to jump into the middle. So bear with me. I'll explain the context as we go along. Reading from Romans. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may have new lives. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Sorry. Okay. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. You can probably tell that the Apostle Paul is talking about some larger topic and using baptism as an illustration, right? Did I actually miss reading a little bit of the passage? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so the reason that baptism works as an illustration in this passage is because it's tightly tied into the larger topic. Paul's topic here is the relationship that Christians should have with sin or wrongdoing now that they're God's children. Sin is believing that you're more important than anything else in the universe. Christians still struggle with sin because God solved the problem of sin not by preventing us from sinning but by rescuing us from the ultimate consequences of sin. Now you might wonder why God was concerned about sin at all. 
What makes sin a problem? This question is actually even more difficult than it might seem because Paul has claimed earlier in this letter that all people, all people are guilty of sin and that this sin has condemned them all to death. That's the ultimate consequence I mentioned before, death. You see, the authors of the Bible have a very different view of human beings to the view our society has. In the current Australian view, when we, we tend to think of ourselves as, as fragile, short-lived things like butterflies. As a result, we try not to be too rough with one another. The contemporary concern for, Austra- uh, for each other's feelings, it's good, it's nice but it does hide an ugly side. The ugly side is that butterflies don't live very long and their lives are not really valued that much, except by entomologists. We see that in our society with its increasing poverty, with its lackadaisical aged care, with the scourge of domestic violence, with the, the, the constant bickering and cancelling in social media, and so on. The Bible's view of human beings, on the other hand, is that we are precious creatures. We're handmade by God to live with him and one another forever, for eternity. In this scenario, living forever, sin is astonishingly destructive. Think about getting married. When you're dating somebody or even engaged, they might have a little quirk. Maybe they insist on controlling the TV you watch together or perhaps they refuse to introduce you to their friends. Whatever. There's lots of ways people can be weird. But when you're dating or engaged, it's easy to overlook that sort of thing. But when you're married, when you're spending every day with that person for the rest of your life, with that niggle, an annoyance can become a disaster. I'm sure you all have your stories of... I'm not going to ask you to shout out what, what your spouse does that drives you up the wall. It can even lead to the death of your marriage and all the carnage that that causes. Sin, self-centeredness, inevitably leads to death. Just give it enough time and there's no way around. But God still wanted to live with his precious creations forever. How could he resolve this problem? Well, he did it by becoming a human himself, Jesus. He lived a life under the same conditions that we do, but without putting himself first. Now, this is even more amazing than it sounds because as God, he had every right and reason to put himself first. That's where God belongs. But he didn't. And at the end of that life, he allowed his own creations to kill him, to attempt to remove him from the world 
even though he was no danger to anyone. He didn't have any of those little niggles or those little selfishnesses. In this death, Jesus died for all of us. His life was so valuable that it was sufficient to pay for every life that was owed to God, which was every life. This story has a wonderful ending because because he was God and because he had done nothing wrong, Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible tells us that Jesus was only the first to rise from the dead and that eventually all of God's children will be raised up again to live in harmony with God and with one another because we won't have sin. Now the big question of course is, How do we gain access to this solution that God has crafted? How do we become one of God's children? And this is where baptism comes in. You see, baptism, as well as being an induction ritual, is also a physical representation of a spiritual reality. I said that at the beginning, remember? Here's what that means. In baptism, we go down into the water. That represents dying to sin with Jesus. How do we die to sin? Jesus told a wise elder named Nicodemus that he had to be born again. Not physically, but spiritually. You see, humans are creatures made of two things, physical bodies and spiritual souls. The physical bodies includes everything that you can touch and see, and spirits are what give us life, thought, feelings, desires and will. And these two work together and if they're separated, our bodies die. This rebirth Jesus was talking about was a rebirth of our spirit, of our soul. Before our spirit can be reborn, the old spirit, the one that considered itself the centre of the universe, that needs to die. And we do this by recognising that we've gone terribly astray when we placed ourselves at the centre of the universe. We recognise that we cannot even fix ourselves. We need Jesus to fix us. We need Jesus to be in charge of our lives. Only then can our spirit be reborn as a spirit that considers God to be the centre of the universe. So that's the death that baptism represents when we go down into the water. And of course, coming up out of the water represents the rebirth of that spirit. We come up out of the water as new creatures, people with new hearts, a transformed attitude, a new perspective. Now we live for the glory of God, as Paul says in that passage we read. We become able to genuinely value other people's entire lives, not just their feelings. In fact, the spiritual reality that baptism represents is even more amazing than that because the word baptize is based on an ancient Greek word that was used to describe the process of dyeing cloth. When you dye cloth, you dip it into a liquid so that it's transformed in colour. Baptism, like dyeing cloth, represents the transformation our hearts have gone through. Now part of that transformation that I haven't mentioned yet is that just as dyed cloth receives added colour, 
we receive an addition to our hearts as well. That addition is the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. God comes to dwell in our hearts, joining himself with us. Just as Jesus came to live with his people in physical form 2,000 years ago, God still comes to live with his people every day in spiritual form. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts enables us to live these new, transformed lives for God's glory. That's what enables us to put others and God before ourselves. And the Bible speaks of this as being adopted into God's own family. It says, And because we are his children, God has sent the Son, the Spirit of his Son, into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child... God has made you his heir. So you can see how baptism is a joyous occasion, right? The spiritual reality of which baptism is a physical representation is so amazing and wonderful that it makes this one of the most joyous occasions possible. And yet... And yet we're still going to be low-key about it because we're Aussies. But as we go out to celebrate this, let's think about what this all means and be filled with gladness and joy. So let's dedicate this time to God. Let's pray. Father, as we go out to baptise Mary and Matthew and Luke, We pray that we would all rejoice in this recognition of their adoption by you. Thank you for the opportunity to join, for them to join your family. In Jesus' name, amen.